Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. Take it away, AZ. Welcome, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com, a very special Mad Dog Afternoon, we're going to call this. The KickServe Radio team of Mats Vilander, seven-time major champion winner, won three major championships in 1988 alone, culminating with his amazing win over Yvonne Lendl in the 1988 U.S. Open. We'll be talking about the U.S. Open as we go. We'll be talking about 1988 as we go. Mats, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Andy. Uh, it's great to be with you again, and uh, we're going to have some fun. And we've also got the great Johnny Levine, two-time All-American at the University of Texas, who had a nice U.S. Open run himself while still in college, gets a wild card, beats Victor Amaya, beats Peter Fleming, and gets an opportunity to play Yvonne Lendl on Armstrong Stadium back in 1983. I'm waiting for this guy to come back to school. And, Johnny, you're off playing the U.S. Open. You were supposed to be rooming with me in college, but you were running a little late that year. How are you doing? Doing great, Andy. We're excited for the show, and uh, welcome Mad Dog. We're really pumped up to have you tonight. Well, and speaking of Mad Dog, you know, how do you know when you're one of the best in the business at something? Certainly, when something is named for you, like Arthur Ashe Stadium is named for Arthur Ashe, a 20,000-plus seat stadium, clearly Arthur is one of the greatest of all time at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. And speaking of Billie Jean King, she's one of the greats of all time. And this guy has a sports talk radio station named for him, Mad Dog Radio. And, of course, I speak of the one and only Christopher Mad Dog Russo. Uh, Doggy, so great to have you joining us tonight on KickServe Radio. How are you tonight? Uh, that's too nice, too kind, Andrew. I don't remember Johnny's match, but I do remember Matt's match uh, against uh, Lendl. I was there covering that for WMCA Radio in New York. And Matt's, if I'm not mistaken, that was a Monday afternoon because there was a rain out. And I believe that was a during the week when you beat Lendl in four sets, not five. That took four hours and 38 minutes. Was that the, how long it was in those days? Yeah, it was. The, the finals of 88 was just south of five hours. I lost in the finals of 1987 to him also in about four, four and a half hours, which was on a Monday. And, uh, uh, I remember going bowling at University Place in Manhattan on Sunday night the day before because we had planned that with a bunch of beers and my friends in New York City. And I'm like, I'm playing the finals tomorrow. I can't go bowl. They're like, come on, man. You go bowling. So it was not great preparation. Well, that's okay. Those two great matches. I remember them well there, Andrew. I was WMCA Radio in New York, and I covered that in you know the old Louis Armstrong Stadium there. Uh, on that, I believe, again, it was a Monday afternoon. I never forget it. And both long, long baseliners. And he lost the first one, came back and beat Yvonne the second time. How are you guys doing tonight? We're all great, Christopher. We, we've been looking forward to this one for a while. And I, I want to start by asking you this, Christopher, because you were at the fan in 1988. But you're one of the guys who's one of the biggest names in the sports talk radio business. And I'm a host at Mile High Sports Radio here in Denver. So you're one of my idols and one of my you know, role models, but, but what is it about the sport of tennis? What lit you up in the day that you're still willing to talk so much tennis on mainstream radio the way you do? Trust me, we appreciate it, but where'd you start out loving the game the way you do? 
Well, I always, I always played it when I was a kid. Now, I got off it there uh, in college. Went to Rollins College, guys. Matt's very good tennis school. Wendy White went there. I went to this Brunfeld, South San Antonio, Texas one year. I took a friend of mine to John Newcomb Tennis Camp. I went there. Uh, that would have been in the wintertime of probably 97 or 8. Uh, so, I mean, I have played it. And since I've been in New Canaan, Connecticut, Matt knows where that is, north of Greenwich. You know, I play as much tennis as I possibly can. Uh, my second serve stinks, Matt. Uh, not enough pop on it. <laughs> and when you play doubles and you play an old man doubles, if you do not serve and volley well, that is when you get in trouble. And my game is running around, hitting ba- playing from the baseline, working with ground strokes. So it doesn't help me when doubles – and when you get to be 60, that's what they want to do is play doubles. Nobody wants to play singles. But, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I got all, in it, off it, in it, off it. But since I really started doing sports talk seriously, and you know, with Mike Francesa in the old days at WFAN, we got big time into it. And then when I got to serious where I could do more tennis and not have to worry about if the audience would be that wrapped up in it, I didn't care anymore. So I would do as much tennis as I, as, as I want to do. Now, I have not been to Wimbledon, which is a no-no. I have not been to the French Open. Matt's has won that. Would you win it twice, Matt? So three, three times. times. Three times. Three times. I have not. Johnny, did you ever play in the French Open in Paris? I did play it um, a couple times, and, and uh, it's an amazing tournament. Great place to play. He had a good go. He had a good goal of it, Chris. He, he was a quarterfinalist in the doubles in, in 89 with Eric Carita. Oh, was he really? Wow. Yeah, sure. He won't tell you that, but I will. There you go, Andy. And I, I have never cut away. He says it's such a great little carnival thing. I should go to that. And I got to take the month of January off one day to go to Australia to watch the Australian Open. So uh, I was in Australia in 77, and Mark Edmondson won that year. But that was an old crew young. Matt's won a grass court. You won grass court there one year, didn't you, Matt? Yeah, I won a couple of, a couple of opens on Kuyong on grass, yeah, and then one on the, uh, on the new arena on hard courts, yeah. So you won three Frenches, three Australians, and one, uh, and one U.S. Open, right? That's right, yes. We have one of the greatest tennis players of all time on our show, as we all know. Oh, he is great. Fun to watch. Wonderful player. Wonderful player. I got to tell you guys, tell you guys a, a quick story. I... Um, I met my wife in New York City and we're still married in 1985. Uh, I was not a big fan of the U.S. Open, and nor was I a big fan of Manhattan at all. And then I started hanging out there with her. And then I remember, I think it was in 1987 or 1988, and I'm in one of these long stretch limousines going to Madison Square Garden to play the Masters. Wow. Okay, And the, the driver has the radio on and it's Imus in the morning. Oh, really? And wow. somebody comes on and says something like, and at the garden tonight, we got Masters Tennis. And first up is that Kami Machir against that Woozy Vlander. And I'm like, they know who I am. And I know my point is that now I'm upset because you were right or Don Imus. I'm not sure if it was you. But what I really appreciate about guys like you, Chris, is because you're not full-time in tennis we as athletes, we actually get the truth from somebody like you. Whereas when you're in the sport, they're trying to uh, be nice because they want an interview with you. So you never really get the feeling like, what, what do they think of me as a, as a person, not as a player, as a person, as a, as a personality. And I got that handed to me and um, I've never forgotten it. I swore if I ever saw that person or spoke to them that said that, I would say something, but I can't. Because it's the truth. I just got much tougher in later years, Chris. Maybe Bernard McGurk, uh, who used to make all those kind of comments with uh, 
with the late Don Imus. I, I, um, I tell you what was a big highlight for me. You know, I do every, every year I go to the open to do the Monday tenant, the Monday show at the open opening day. Now for, for a sports talk show nationally to go to the open to do, and that's not easy because you're doing five hours of tennis and the tennis player isn't necessarily, first of all, he's not going to know me. It's, it's local or New York or, or it's radio in America. So the, a lot of European, you know, Rafael Nadal does not know who Christopher Russo is. Nor does Roger Federer, nor does Holop. And they don't know why. But last year, Djokovic came on. And Djokovic was very, very, very big, crowd, animated. I mean, he gave me a good 12, 13 minutes. So I mean, obviously you could talk about the 458 against uh, Federer at, the, at Wimbledon. So when you do those kind of shows and you get that kind of guest, where you get Novak Djokovic, Novak Djokovic on local or national radio in America, when you can do that, you've done a good job. So uh, I've gone there every, I mean, I've gone there, I remember great interviews with, uh, not Labor, who's the other, Edmondson, what's his name, what's his first name? Roy Emerson. Roy Emerson, great stuff with him. Obviously, I mean, Emerson told me that the best player you ever saw pound for pound, one match, best player you ever saw pound for pound was Lou Holt. Right. Best player you ever saw pound for pound. Uh, and I know I know Johnny Mackwell, I know P. Mackwell. And so what you have to do here is you have to take advantage of the days that you can do tennis if you're a sports talk show host. So after a Nadal, Federer, Wimbledon, after a Djokovic, Federer, Wimbledon, a day at the U.S. Open on a Monday, something dramatic like that Serena with the nut with uh, Osaka there a couple of years ago. And I did two days on that because I was really down on Serena. Two days on that. And that was a Monday of week one of the NFL. And we led with Serena. And we led with Serena. This is a national show, week one of the NFL, her match on Saturday. And then when she went nuts and she went crazy with the chair umpire and everything else, got the warnings. Monday and Tuesday, five hours about Serena. So I do as much as I can. Let me ask you, Chris, because uh, when, I, when, I, when I listen to you, now that I, uh, I see you as well, I, I would have uh, thought that you would have thought that Borg McEnroe Connors uh, as a breakout uh, trio uh, that broke away from the uh, gentleman sport and turned it into rock and roll. I would have thought you thought they did more, or they were more compelling than Roger, Rafa, and Novak Djokovic. But I've heard you say that you think the three now are are a bigger deal. What, where is where do you stand on that? Who, who makes the tennis more popular? Well, for Americans, they're going to go with what you first said. They're going to go Borg, McEnroe, Connors because of the and throwing a little Nastasi too. Because of the flash, little nastiness, always on edge. So they're going to go in that direction. And, you know, they're not going to go the European way because, it, you know, three Europeans. But as far as greatness is concerned, those three, to me, are a better combination than Mac, Borg, and Connors. you got to remember, two, Borg never won a U.S. Open. So you gotta, you got to keep down in mind. You know, it's kind of freaky that he never won it, but he never won the U.S. Open. And Connors had these gaps, and we had a four or five year gap, and he didn't do much. And then in '90, he gets the he gets the semifinals against Courier. So in my the average American, the average American will tell you the three that you just mentioned. But the Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, the rivalries with all three, and that is why I think at the end of the day, Djokovic might be ranked number one out of all three. Forget if he wins the amount of champ. What is he? Eleven and three in the last 14 Grand Slam finals against the two of them? 
I believe so. Yes, he's dominating. He's got a winning record against against Federer, albeit Federer a little past his prime. He's still beaten him more times in big matches than Federer has beaten him. Yeah. And he's and he's never intimidated by Nadal. And his clinic against Nadal last year at the Australian Open. When do we ever recall Nadal almost getting up? Yeah. Never. <laughs> and he he killed him yeah. that 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 day. Destroyed him. So I I actually think now the problem with Djokovic is he has these gaps. You know, he goes away for a year. Yeah. You know, he loses interest. You know, I think after he won that first French Open, he disappeared. He kind of disappears. But if if for my money, he's not the most fun to watch. But for my money, out of the three of them, I think Djokovic, who's the most underrated, might be the all-time best out of the three. Thanks for listening, guys. We are KickServeRadio.com on Tennis Channel Podcast Network. More with Matt, Johnny, and AZ right after this. Spectacularly set in the Sun Valley area of Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes to train inside to excel outside. The former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis, a full-scale training center that includes indoor tennis, high-quality training equipment, yoga studios, hydro facilities, and more. Most importantly, you are trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is a very special experience, one that I assure you, you will never forget. So go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity in Haley, Idaho for a tennis and training experience of a lifetime. Our special guest today on kickserveradio.com is the Mad Dog himself, Christopher Russo, the Marquis of Mad Dog Radio on Sirius XM Channel 82. You can catch Christopher on Mad Dog Unleashed every Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 Eastern, always highly entertaining and informative. Christopher, this week they announced that uh, they are going to go forward with the U.S. Open, and you talk about how compelling Johnny Mack is and how compelling Connors. You think about those guys playing at the U.S. Open, you think about their interaction with the crowd. It's one thing to think about professional tennis being played without a crowd, but, boy, the, the concept of, of tennis being played at the U.S. Open without a crowd – what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think they, I'm surprised they're doing it. I'm glad to see the French Open move back a week. I think that's a positive. I, I, think, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if um, Nadal and Djokovic show up. Because Nadal and Djokovic, you know they don't want to come to New York. You know they don't want to be cooped up in a hotel in Queens near LaGuardia Airport. You know they want to not only be able to bring one person. And they also have the parachute. They can stay in Europe and this, and they can play a major in Paris a week or so later. So, but I do think ten, they owe tennis. Tennis is going to need them. Federer's hurt. Tennis is going to need that. Serena was going to play. She's an American. We understand that. But for those two to come here, New York is no longer the epicenter. Those two need to be here for that event. And I, Matt's going to be able to answer it. Johnny Bay answered a lot better than me. I got a funny feeling they won't come. And I think they oh, the, the sport needs them. New York and the sport needs them there in for those two weeks. It would be very, very interesting if they come. Matt, you spoke to Joker two days ago on air. You guys did a half hour together. What, what kind of comments did he make 
along the lines of what uh, what Mad Dog is saying. Yeah, so Novak clearly um, does not want to commit. Uh, and now that they've added a couple of people uh, that you can bring with you, was one originally, now you can bring three people with you. Um, he, it sounded like he was uh, thinking about it a little bit more, but I had no feeling that he was going to come to the U.S. Open. I really do. I, I agree with you, Chris. There's a very small chance, I think, that Novak uh, and Rafa come. Um, do should they come? I don't know. I think that if they can't come at their best, I think what people don't realize is that it doesn't take that much for a tennis player to lose a bit of confidence. Maybe they lose to somebody in the fourth round or quarters that they shouldn't lose to, and suddenly they lose confidence. Then they lose interest because they lost confidence. And it doesn't take that much for even those great players to to slip a little bit, and we might not ha- never have them again. So I think that it's I, I kind of I feel more for them than the uh, sort of the the down middle down the road pro who kind of he's just going to go and it's a, you can make some money you can get some great ranking points. But they, these guys, they really have a lot to lose by going to the U.S. Open with no people, I have to say. I agree with that, but they owe it to the, to me, they owe it to the sport. I agree. And I'll tell you right now, they're going to get pounded. I'm going to pound them. <laughs> if they play Paris a week or two later and don't play New York, that's going to bother me. Because I know they're going to tell me, well, Paris, the commuting is easier. I'm 100, I, I can drive there. It's an easier travel. I know, I know that's what they're going to say, but to me... If you can play the French Open in late September, you can play New York in early September. And that's my take on it. That's how I feel. I couldn't agree more. I think they owe it to the sport because they can never repay to the sport of tennis what tennis has done for them. Okay, if you're Roger Federer. And if, and if they lose, who cares? Someone's going to make a big deal about it. So, so you lose. And they, they have nothing to prove. These are two of the all-time greats. You know, I think Federer would have come if he was held. I agree. Yeah. Because he likes New York, you know, he likes he likes it. I think Roger would have come. But this would be interesting. That would be an interesting call if those two come. You know, Halep, if she doesn't come, it's not the end of the world. You know, it's not like the world's going to make sure Simona Halep is in New York. Serena had to come. Serena had to come. Venus has to come. All right? Uh, but not, I'm not so sure about the, the European woman as much. You like him too. I'm not positive, but Net Nadal and Djokovic are going to have a very interesting story to follow in the next four or five weeks. I was going to change gears here a little bit. I know, Chris, uh, we had some spies on you, and we know that you, I think you even played some tennis today, maybe some doubles. We know you love doubles. No, I played last night. Okay, okay. So I usually play three days a week. I'll play Sunday morning. You know, we have, I'm at a, I'm at a nice club here in New Canaan. Ten courts, hard true, and we have about eight or ten pretty good players, better than me, pretty good players. But in doubles, it's an equalizer. And so as a result, we get two courts on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, now, I, 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 here's what you – if you want to anal- if you want to get into this, I'll make it quick. If you wanted to analyze my game, I think what you would say is for 60 years of age, you know, he's quick, covers the court well. Good competitor. I don't think Mats Vilander would be that wrapped up in the strokes. <laughs> I don't think you would be that impressed, Johnny. And, you know, in, in, in the way I, I don't hit the ball from a standpoint of uh, country club upbringing, but I think you would be impressed of the competitive desire 
and the fact that, you know, I know how to play. I would recommend you head to Haley, though, and get a couple lessons from Matt's. I know he'd love to, to help you out. But Matt's, Matt's got a great reputation up here. Everybody knows him well. Go ahead. No, he loves, he loves to make players get better. But um, what I was curious with the doubles, what, what, what is your feeling on, on the professional tour? You know, most tennis players play doubles. I mean, most average guys like yourself that play tennis, they, they love doubles. I mean, you look at some of the slams, some of the major tournaments, you go to a finals of, of the doubles, which is really great tennis, and there's no one in the stands. I mean, what, what would be your reasoning? What, 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 why do you think it doesn't have the allure that the singles has? What, what's your thoughts? Well, I think, you made a, I think you made a great point. Most people who play, uh, you know, uh, country club tennis, so to speak, they, there's very little singles. Right. I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, the big, the big players don't play doubles. I mean, you know, I mean, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. You know, Serena does, and she's good at it. Uh, so she will be a draw, but I think that's part of it. The most big players don't play doubles. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of, you know, great airplay. You know, you're going to see the Wimbledon doubles final at 1 o'clock in the afternoon if they've had a quick final, and they got to kill three hours of time, they stick the mixed doubles final on. So from that standpoint, it doesn't get the primo spots that you like to see it get. Um, I, I really don't have any – I think your best thing, Johnny, was you would think that – a a a, uh, a sport that highlights when you're older doubles that people who are like doubles would love to watch it when they are going to ten- going to tournaments and you very rarely see, and you never see it. Uh, I think it would help if the big players played. I think it would help, but for whatever the reason, it's all about singles. I, I don't. That's a very you know the days of Ewan and McMillan. Those days are long gone. For crying out loud, right. You 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 know we have on our show here the Wimbledon doubles champion. What year was that, Matt? <laughs> it was in 1987. Yeah, we were supposed to be the worst team to ever win Wimbledon. We were told by all the other uh, fellow pros. I thought it was 86. You told me. No, I think it's 87. You know what? I don't even remember. What about that. Who'd you play with, Matt? I played with Joachim Newstrom. And your uh, longest foray in the Wimbledon was a quarterfinal, correct? Yes, I made quarters a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you, Chris, I, I'm very interested because obviously I'm in tennis. Uh, I do a bunch of commentating for Eurosport, a uh, channel that, cover, that is, is in every European country. We got the rights for the three majors, the three opens, not uh, the rights for Wimbledon. But I'm looking at Roger Federer, Rafa, Nadal, Novak Djokovic. That's an unbelievable era. And there's no way we can repeat what they have done. We can never hope for that. So something is going to happen. Does something have to change? I'm not sure. I think what I hear from you is that we should maybe force the best players to play doubles because doubles is a big thing. So why isn't there a combined ranking between singles and doubles? But what do you think we should push? Because the average age of our tennis fan is getting older and older and older because we don't get new fans. What do you, as a sports fanatic and a tennis fanatic, what do you, would you like to see tennis do? The younger player is Nick Curious a good thing. I mean, where, where should we go after Roger Rafa Novak? It's, it's very tricky. You know, Kyrgios is, you know, he's fun to watch when he's in the mood. You know, you remember that great match a couple of years ago that he played down in Miami against Federer, that great three hour and 27 minute third set. Unbelievable uh, great match. match. Uh, when he's in the mood, he's fun to watch, but you know, he, you can't count on him on a day to day basis. That is a problem. All sports except for football and basketball, 
all sports. Baseball has this problem. I think golf has this problem. Tiger's getting older. Tennis obviously has this problem. A lot of sports um, in this generation are having problems connecting with the younger fan. The younger fan wants the instant gratification, doesn't want to sit there and think about the three-hour, four-hour tennis match. Um, You know, football, they can bet it. They can play fantasy. Basketball is so much about the great individual player, you know, LeBron and everything else. Even basketball struggles because basketball regular season does not do well. Uh, It's only when the big stars are in the finals where it has some juice. Regular season NBA, at least in this country, is not as – they make it seem like the whole world watches. That's not true. Uh, Go look at the ratings. I know. I've looked at them all the time. I I don't know how we can get the younger fan involved. It's not going to be by doubles matches. Yeah. Um, You need – at least for us, we need an American player. Right. You know, uh, I'm only, you know, Europe, I think tennis is, what, still the third biggest sport after cycling and soccer. We need, we need an American man to take over, uh, be dynamic, have some personality, have a little flash. We need that. I Probably more than one because you need a rivalry. Uh, that's what we need more than anything else. You know, Sampras and Agassi, U.S. Open, that kind of thing. And they didn't play that much in finals. You know, they only played, what, seven finals? In the history of their history, I think it was seven, five to yeah. two for a cent. We need, we need a rivalry of a couple of Americans to bring the average fan into the mix. And I don't know what the answer is to that. And I think the other thing you got to remember too, Matt, there's not a lot of tournaments in America. Yeah. You got Indian Wells, you have Cincinnati, you have the U.S. Open, you have Miami a little bit. And there's not a lot of tournaments where they all come to play. They never play back-to-back in, Indi- in Indianapolis and Miami. They usually play one of them. They only play the one tournament before the U.S. Open. And then they go play the U.S. Open, and we don't see them again until March. Yeah, true. And, you know, the American watching the tournament when they're in Europe, the time difference, you know, if, to watch the Australian Open final, you got to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. So in a lot of ways, tennis is not conducive to the American viewing habit. And then you throw in the fact that there's no Americans. And then you throw in the fact they're not here much. I mean, it makes it tricky. And, you know, here it is, Nadal and Federer never played in New York. Think about that. I mean, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, Nadal and Federer have never played a match in New York City. I mean, the biggest city in the world, and they would be into that, and they never played. So it's a weird – it's weird. It's unlucky. It's unlucky. Christopher, there's an American player I want to ask you about. I want to go to a break real quick. Can you hang with us for like two seconds? Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Stick with us on kickserveradio.com. You are hearing some great stuff from the great Christopher Mad Dog Russo, the great former number one in the world, Matt Svilander, former Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. Don't go away. More with the Mad Dog right after this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. (laughs) 
Okay, we are back on KickServeRadio.com. This is Mad Dog Afternoon, and we are so excited to be joined by the marquee from Mad Dog Radio, Christopher Mad Dog Russo. And Mad Dog, I heard you do an interview with one of the former great Americans. He's still still a great American. He's just not playing pro tennis anymore. And this took place at the Super Bowl, if memory serves. And you were talking to Andy Roddick. Do you remember that interview that you did? I do. Yeah, yep, I sure do. And you asked Andy Roddick if he was disappointed in his career in so much as the fact that he only won the one major championship. And I was a little surprised by his response. I was actually rather pleased with it. He said, well, you know, it could have easily been zero. I'm down match points against David Nalbandian in the quarters of that. And he ends up winning that thing. And uh, that seemed like you had a lot of fun with Andy that day. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of personality. You know, uh, Roddick was, I never looked at, I don't think Roddick was great. I think Roddick was, um, you know, very good. And I think he was probably five to six points away in his career of being a hell of a player. You know, he had, we had Federer in big trouble, the one tiebreaker. We all know that. He missed a, didn't he miss a backhand volley in the tiebreaker? And he also, he had Federer in huge trouble. And then the rain delay came that one year when Federer beat him in, in, in England. Uh, he could have won, uh, uh, won a final or two. At Wimbledon, that would have changed the narrative a little bit. He probably could have won three or four majors, a U.S. Open, a couple of Wimbledons. I always thought he was uh, he was very good. I never he wasn't great. I mean, I mean, I know he's in the Hall of Fame; he's going to make it. But from a standpoint of how I judge all-time greats, you got to win more than one major. Match is an all-time great; he won seven majors. I mean, you got to you got to win more than one, and he needed two or three more to you know on a Wimbledon bounce of the ball, a little lucky, he would have done that. But he was unlucky. Where do you rank V-Lander all time, Chris? Edberg, Becker, where, where is he? No, he's right here. He's right in. Let's go. Let's hear it. I got to think about that. I would probably well, – well let's, well, let's go through that. Uh, you want to go from, like, what, 19, 19, sure. 1960 on? Let's go all time, if it's off the top of your head. Well, yeah, if all time, you know, where do you put Pancho Gonzalez? Where do you put Jack Kramer? So, I, uh, let's see. It's very, very tricky with the, the way it worked then. Start with Connors. Maybe that era. Start yeah, with we'll lay off with Labor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he's, a, he's a great player, but he's not on that level. Uh, Con, if, you, if you're looking at the great players, this is the way I would do it, okay? Um, I'm not going to put him in order yet. Borg, Borg, Mac, the big three here. Now, how about this, Christopher? Matt uh, Svilander, three and two lifetime against Lendl in major finals. Wow. Yeah, and- yeah, beat him in 85 in Paris and 84 on grass in Australia. I, I, I actually heard you. Um, uh, Andy sent me uh, a link to a show that you did, Chris. Accidentally. And, you, and he didn't even know that, uh, that you started talking about ranking the players. And then you got to me and you said something like, to be a great player, you had to win Wimbledon. I did. I did used to believe that. I did used to believe. But I think that to be a great player, you should win on all surfaces. First of all, you need to win on all surfaces which I did, but I didn't win Wimbledon. So I agree with you. I'm not, I, I was not a great, I'm a, well, it's a very, tr- you know, it's a very tricky spot though, because Borg didn't win in New York and Pete didn't win in Paris. Sure. Exactly. So, so if I'm going to pick on you and Lendl, was that a full field that year that you won it? Uh, it was a full field. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah. 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 Beat McEnroe the year before. Oh, so Mac, Mac went to Australia that year. No, he went in 1983 and I beat him in the semis 83. I beat Kevin Curran in the final. And I beat Lendl in 84. Yeah, that's a, you know, you're right. He doesn't get credit for that. 
Because, because it's, this is before the Australian Open was the Australian. Yeah. But I heard you. No, but I, I heard you, and I'm willing to, and I'm not willing, and I'm, I, and I'm going to tell you the ranking because you're still thinking, Chris. I know. You're... Go ahead. Yeah, let me hear. Let me hear you tap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's who's number one? Well, number one is is Federer. It has to go Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Rod Laver, uh, Pete Sampras, Jaron Borg. Uh, yeah, and then I would put John McEnroe because of all the doubles. Uh, ahead of Lendo, I put Agassi and McEnroe pretty similar. Uh, and then I would go down to the guys that have won six majors. Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg are ahead of me. And I am the next guy after those guys. I am that guy. After. Where do you have Connors in there? Connors is a little bit like Pete Rose. Yeah. You know, he's <laughs> a great player yeah. from a longevity standpoint, more so than anything else. You know, he only won, he, what he wins? He won five U.S. Opens and two Wimbledons, right? Yeah, and an Australian, seven. but that wasn't a full field. In 74, he won the Australian, that's right. So he won eight. I would go, it's too soon yet. I would put, I know this is wacky, I would put Djokovic one. Boy, it pains me to do it. I would put <laughs> Djokovic one. I would probably put Fed two. I would put, uh, boy, I guess I got to put Nadal three. I mean, I... Well, you could put Sampras out of him. Where do you put Rod Labor? Where, where, how do we rate Rod Labor on Bureau Board? I mean, Labor, you know, I didn't put Labor in there because you did it from Connors. You put him out there. Labor's top five. Yeah, Labor's top five. Labor's top five. I said, I said start from Connors on, so that's because that's of me. How do you look at Bjorn Borg, who quit at age of 25? I mean, he won, what, he won 11 majors? Right. Yeah. Uh, he would have won a lot more than that. He missed seven years. He didn't play. Well, the positive, the positive about Borg is he won on the two hardest surfaces. Very fair. The negative about Borg, now you want to tell me it was because it was a freaky Roscoe Tanner at 4 o'clock in the afternoon one year with those rocket serves. The issue with Borg, to me, would he never won a U.S. Open. He, never, I mean, he got to the finals, I understand that. But a guy of that pedigree... You know, there's a reason why Pete didn't win the French. It was, you know, a lot of clay court specialists and all that. A guy of in, in Borg's day, they played it on clay. You know, he played the Borg French Open, the U.S. Open on clay. He should have been able to yeah. figure out in a 10-year period a way to win a U.S. Open. Isn't that fair to say that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, he lost to Connors, too. Roscoe Tanner beat him once. You know, Tanner beat him once, and the yeah. year after Tanner, Borg yeah. beat Tanner, they played two months later in the U.S. Open. And I don't know what round it was. And I know Borg was moaning and groaning because they started at 4 o'clock, and they ended it in lights, and he said he couldn't pick up to serve. Yeah. I think that may have been the year that Borg beat Roscoe at the Wimbledon final. He beat him in the Wimbledon final one year. I mean, I, you know, Borg is in the top four or five. I think it's very tricky, though, to decide those three or four. And you're going to have to put Lendo, you're going to have to put Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer in there. There's no way around it. So if you put those three guys in there, you got two spots left. Who, who, who's the go to? Labor, and who's the other one? You got to put Pete. That's the way you got to look at it. If you go Djokovic, which you have to, Len, uh, Federer, which you have to, and Nadal, you got to put Labor in there. He won two grand slams. So you got one spot left for the top five. To me, it's either Borger. To me, it's either Borger Pete. Christopher, what are your memories of the '91 run that Connors had? 
when he's 39 years of age and the Crickstein match and the Patrick McEnroe match and the insanity of New York City during that run? Well, first off, I didn't root for him. So that's the first thing. (laughs) Uh, Second thing, I remember, I don't know if it was the Saturday of his semifinal, but I was doing Saturday AM at FAN at the time. And I went on and on about, let's take it easy on Connors. He has beaten nobody to get to this point because he beat McEnroe. He beat Cal Novacek. I mean, he beat nobody. And you know, Parhus. Yeah, Paul Newhoust. I yeah. think the, the, the Danish kid, you're right. And you, and you know who, wasn't Novacek, it was Newhoust, whatever his name is. Yeah, Harhus. But you know who called up at 11 o'clock in the morning, driving up to the U.S. Open from Jersey? After I was going crazy. Oh, boy. Crickstein. Aaron Crickstein. Oh, no. You can't be serious, man. I was going nuts. He said, Aaron from the Jersey Shore. So I had, this is about four days after Crickstein blew that horrendous match on Labor Day. And so I mean, I had Crickstein on talking about, about Connors because my point was, Jimmy did get a good draw. I mean, Hose, Crickstein, PMAC, who else did he play before he got to the semifinals? Two others. Do you remember the? But do you remember the PMAC match? Because PMAC, I, I had I had PMAC on the show, and I said, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong here. I said you had Connors down two sets and three love in the third. Is that is that how I remember it? He said, No, that's incorrect. I had Connors down two sets, three love, forty love, in the third. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That was uh, he. He gets a little sentiment. He gets a little annoyed by that match. That match. I mean, ever the McEnroe's and the Connors. There's no love lost, so you got to keep that in mind too. Uh, but I would put um, I, I would put Borg in the top five, and that Connors. You got to love Connors' longevity. You got to love Connors. I guess I would put Sampras in the top five. You got to love uh, Borg, uh, Connors' longevity. You have to love his feistiness. You know, he was a crowd pleaser. Played well in a big moment. Um, long gap in his career, which is adds to it, 74. And, you know, well, you know, his last major was 82, wasn't it? Yes. Do you think that tennis should loosen up a bit on, on the rules and the, that we need to uh, uh, educate players that, listen, the, the, the crowd needs to be like the New York crowd and be a little wilder? Does tennis need to go wilder after Federer and Nadal and Djokovic? No, I, no, I don't. I don't. You, you know what are the two great events – of the year in sports are Augusta and Wimbledon. Right. They're very similar. Quaint. It's, 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 it's decorum. It's a throwback where you can, it's a different vibe when you watch, you know, it can draw the, everybody can relate to it a little bit, the history of both. So I think they're better off. Never touch Wimbledon. Everybody tells me it's the best place in the world. Don't touch Wimbledon. I think the U.S. has its own vibe. Australia's got some of its vibe. French has. I, I think the vibes at the majors are pretty good. What tennis needs is an offseason. Tennis, tennis should stop late September. There should be not another tennis tournament after late September, and I don't want to see a ball hit into after the new year. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to see, you know, figure out what you want to do with the ATP final, but you need an offseason in the sport. All sports have an off-season. Wet your appetite, you know, you, the, anticipata- the anticipation of the next season. Tennis doesn't have that. They end the ATP, what, a week or two before Thanksgiving, and six weeks later they're playing at Brisbane. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. You need a little break where you can forget about it and you can think about an off season and tennis doesn't have that. I think that's a big problem with it. I really do. Before we let you go, Chris, and we so appreciate the time that you're taking to talk to us when you're such a busy guy doing what you do, but are you concerned with the overall um, place that sports is going to be in when we come back? And and Matt's kind of made this point, so I apologize for stealing your thunder, Matt, because I know you wanted to ask about baseball. And if people start watching baseball games on television, might they just decide to save the two to 500 bucks and, and people just stop going to games? Uh, I think some sports will have a problem with that. Baseballs, uh, they have a big window there in the summertime. You can go to a ball game and do other things besides watch the game, eat, walk around. There's other activities at the game to keep you occupied besides just the game, and it's warm weather. And it's an outing with the kids on a weekend. So I think baseball will be okay from when the fans return. Uh, Football, we all know football is important because fans love that Sunday afternoon uh, where they can tailgate and go to the game and everything else. So football, and there won't be fans this year in football. So, uh, you know, maybe at the end of the year we'll get fans, but there's not going to be fans in football. And so football's got a lot of problems right now because everywhere you turn is COVID stuff. 28 Clemson players, Texas players, the Cowboys, you know, Fauci two days ago, football should play in a bubble. The NFL which so far has been very unscathed through this whole situation. All the other sports have had to adapt. Football, they did their drift. All right, they didn't go to Vegas, but they did it. They did their schedule. They did their offseason. No offseason workouts, who cares? They haven't moved anything with their season yet. Football has been very lucky with the timing of this. They're not going to gather this unscathed. So that will be a problem too. Hockey, the hockey fan is pretty loyal. And an NBA fan, there's something about being at an NBA game. I actually think that the fans will storm back. I really do. Uh, I know the money won't be that money be a little tight. I get that. People are going to be nervous about going with big gatherings, but people miss it. And and I think the fan, I think fans will go by. It's going to be very odd watching these games without fans. It's going to be terrible watching the U.S. Open without fans. And I think when they have an opportunity to return. They, they will return in waves. I, I, I really do believe that. Now, I think we're in for a rough next four or five months because I don't think fans are going to be there. They have to go through hula hoops to get these games in. Baseball hasn't gotten a deal done yet. The NBA, they're going to get bored stiff in Central Florida for 50 days. The NFL, we just discussed. Who knows on college football? We're not out of this yet. It's going to take another five, six months. But I do think when they get a chance to go back out again, I think we're all going to go. On behalf of all the sports fans in America, I want to thank you for helping us get through these times because I've been listening to you every day. And I think I speak on behalf of myself and Johnny and, and offering up Matt's to uh, maybe join you occasionally on, uh, on Mad, Mad Dog Unleashed. You know I mean? I got to do you- that. You know, I will do that. We, I'm going to need some help. I will do that. And next time I'm at a big event, you two, Matt's answer the phone out there in Haley, Idaho. Will you please? <laughs> I'll answer the phone. I would love to do that, Chris. It was a pleasure, a pleasure to uh, talk to you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you down the road for sure. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Andy, Johnny, thank you, buddy. It's good to have you. Good to be with you today. And that was Christopher Mad Dog Russo. And hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, we'll be back with more kickserveradio.com. One more segment to go. So don't go away. We want to talk a little bit about what we heard from the doggy 
Be right back after this. All right, everybody, back on kickserveradio.com, Mad Dog Afternoon. Oh, my goodness, does it get much more fun than talking to the great Christopher Mad Dog Russo. And, Matt, you were at the top of the game in 1988. Mad Dog was just starting his career in 1988. Now you guys finally crossed paths for the first time. What are your impressions? Well, I think you realize why um, uh, somebody is as good and as renowned uh, and has accomplished so much with his own uh, radio show, radio channel, whatever, because he knows everything. He knows everything about every sport. And, I mean, he knows as much about tennis uh, as I do. And I've been in this since 16 years old, and I'm, that's, I've been in it for 40 years playing, uh, and he knows pretty much as much as I do, or even more when it comes to statistics. So I think that you... Um, you have to look at the passion. To me, it's the passion uh, about every sport, the intricacies about the emotional part of sports, the tactical part of, part of sports, the physical side. He kind of just soaks it up, and yeah, you get blown away when you. But I really like it because he's, you know, he is opinionated, opinionated, but he is not neutral. And I think a lot of tennis reporters out there, they're scared of their job and they're scared of saying something about Roger Federer or, or Novak Djokovic because they might have an interview with them. Mr. Mad Dog is, doesn't worry about that kind of thing. And I think that's why, to me, uh, I, I, it's very honest and uh, I love it. I love it. I think every player would enjoy talking to him. Well, I can tell you that he does have an absolutely photographic memory that goes back a good 40 years. But when it comes to pronouncing people's names, he can butcher them with the best of them. Paul Harhus, I'm not even sure what he was referring to him as, but he does that on a daily basis, which is part of the allure of his show. Um, and so I, I, I tell you, I was very nervous bringing him on because of what I do with Mile High Sports here in Denver and then to have an opportunity to talk to that guy. Now, we did talk, Johnny, about the thought of playing the U.S. Open in front of no fans. And I've got to believe that one of the most nerve-wracking moments in your career was when you walked onto Armstrong Stadium to play a third-round match, albeit on the house's money, against Yvonne Lendl. i got to believe it was that New York crowd that probably was as electrifying as the moment itself with regard to not just the fact that you're playing the, probably the number one player in the world at the time, but in front of that New York crowd, how different would that have been for you walking into an empty stadium? Uh, you know what, Andy? I remember it pretty much like it was yesterday. I will have to correct you, though. It was the grandstand. It was not Armstrong. Oh, my bad. It was the grandstand. However, Better research next time. <laughs> I do remember walking out from the locker room, Lendl in front of me, I mean, it was like, it was pretty wild. And, uh, you know, I was so nervous. I'd never been in that kind of a situation. I think he was seated one or two. I know he lost in the finals to Connors. Um, so we walked out onto the grandstand and, and you know, it's, it was pretty packed. Um, I can't even imagine what it would, have been, what it would be like to go on to, into that situation with not, not a fan in, 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 in the seats. I mean, I was fortunate. I mean, I, I felt like I had, even though, you know, Lendl was Lendl at the time, you know, I was an American, young American, and I felt like I had a pretty good crowd behind me there. A lot of people rooting for me, obviously the underdog American kid. Um, I remember it was, I think it was two, one. I, I was first 
guy, he had won two matches, hadn't lost serve. I broke his serve. Crowd went nuts. I mean, um, it was it was really a, quite a quite a unique experience for me with the crowd. Um, I couldn't imagine what it would be like without fans. And I know Matt's. I would love to get his take on it because he's been, you know, to finals of slams. I mean, I, I don't know, Matt's. I mean, it's it would. This is going to be something unprecedented. So I don't know. I think that you know. I think that there's certain players that actually. Uh, that actually having no people there, it would benefit them. I think that it would actually benefit somebody like Roger Federer when he is playing against the likes of Novak uh, or Rafa because uh, I don't care who he plays, 90% of the crowd wants Roger Federer to win. And, and he knows that, th- that he has less, of a, less than 50% chance of beating those two uh, in big finals lately. And I think that he most probably feels a little bit of pressure because everybody wants him to win, and it's not easy. So I think that the different matchups is going to matter. Um, I think when when uh, you play against a player uh, that either you don't like personally, um, or there's something about their game that irritates you, how can you be playing in the same tournament as me when you can't hit a topspin backhand? I don't need a crowd for a match like that. But then there is other situations where you're playing somebody like Yannick Noah or John McEnroe and the crowd gets so involved and I always thought the more involved the crowd was the crazier Johnny Mac was going which is then easier to play better myself because he's obviously going crazy because I'm making him irritated because if he was beating me he wouldn't be irritated so I think it's I don't think it benefits a certain player. I think that it benefits the lower-ranked players to not have a crowd, yes. But when it comes to uh, the big names, I think um, Roger and Rafa would do great without a crowd. Maybe Novak needs a little bit of uh, motivation from the sideline, uh, whether they're for him or not. But I I think that the lower-ranked players, they have a massive situation in New York that they need to take advantage of. That being said, Mats, is there a chance in hell that Jimmy Connors makes the semifinals of the U.S. Open in 1991 at the age of 39 without that crowd? And a second part to that question, if no crowd, does Bjorn Borg perhaps win it? Yeah, New York was really tough to play if you were a quiet player uh, that didn't bring any fireworks so that the crowd could get excited. Um, when you play a game, and I know this from, <laughs> from the way I play, when you play a game like Borg, you really want the attention of your opponent. You want them to see and feel your presence. But in, of course, in, in New York, the fans were, uh, you know, they wanted your attention. So I think that it did not help Bjorn Borg whatsoever. To me, the best story is Ivan Lendl. I mean, he made, I think, eight or nine finals in a row. Uh, and he was not loved early on because of the Cold War effect with Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. And he just fought and fought and he overcame it. And then I came along in 88 and now they're rooting for me. But still, Ivan Landel is one of the most dominant players at the U.S. Open. And I think he's gained more respect there than any other player I can think of. Both Matt and Andy, what do you guys think of a guy like Kyrgios? How does he perform if he even plays without fans? I mean, he's so reactive to the fans and 
kind of plays for the fans and reacts and, you know, goes crazy. And the fans are such a big part of how he plays. How does a guy like Kyrgios play without anyone in the that's an, that's You know what? I can't think of a question that would be tougher to answer with regard to unpredictability than what you're going to get from Nick Kyrgios in any particular situation under any set of circumstances. And I think that anybody that felt like they had a definitive answer on that needs to be his coach. So I would say that I could see him completely losing interest uh, because of the fact that there's no interaction with the fans. That being said, I feel like he's been complete. He's gone completely off the rails because of interaction with the fans. I'm going to yield to Matt's judgment on this one. I just feel like that's an excellent question. I wouldn't begin to be able to answer it. Well, I think a lot of players are hiding uh, kind of behind uh, certain excuses. And I always wonder if Nick Curious. Because of the fans there, he is playing up to them. Uh, why isn't he trying all the time? Is it because he's afraid of losing? Or does he actually not really care, even if there are fans there? So, I, again, maybe it could help him to find out how much he actually, first, hates to lose. Second, loves to compete. Because I think he does. I think he does. I think he just hides behind his antics a little bit, and he's going to have a full house because of what he does. And you know his sponsors are telling him, Nick, we don't really care if you win Wimbledon or U.S. Open. We just want you to be Nick because Nick is selling shoes and rackets and clothes. So I don't think anyone is necessarily encouraging him to change. Yeah, we like to see him win. But I don't think it's the future of tennis to be that interactive with the fans. But I certainly think Nick Curious is uh, a bit of Nick Curious would be great for tennis moving forwards. Before we close out tonight, everybody, I just want to thank Tennis Channel for making us a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're excited that the U.S. Open is going to be played. We hope that the French Open will be played as well. Mats Vlander, winner of the U.S. Open in 1988. That was his best result as a pro. It was the day he beat Yvonne Lendl. It was his third major win that year. He became the number one player in the world. Johnny Levine had two good results, a quarterfinal appearance in 1989 with Eric Carita, and that third-round appearance uh, also against Yvonne Lendl that we alluded to a little bit earlier, and I was corrected. It was in the grandstand, not Armstrong Stadium. Still an amazing accomplishment, one that, Johnny, all of us in University of Texas Tennis history are so proud of you for. And uh, even though it meant you not getting back to school for a couple of weeks, we were certainly excited to watch you beat Victor Amaya, beat P Peter Fleming, and then eventually get an opportunity to take a crack at the great Yvonne Lendl. want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, Christopher Mad Dog Russo. Hopefully we'll be able to get Matt Svelander on Mad Dog Unleashed one of these days, if not more. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Enjoy what we're doing, and thanks for joining us on KickServeRadio.com, today's edition of Mad Dog Afternoon. See you real soon.